Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you and we anticipate you working, anticipate you encouraging us with great views of who you are, what you have called us to. We anticipate you convicting us of areas of faithlessness and weakness. And Lord, we thank you for your grace in those things and ask that this time would be profitable, be edifying. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have to ask ourselves, why do we follow Christ? Why do we follow Christ? Do, do we secretly subscribe to you know, some of the, the best life now kind of idea? Maybe thinking that health, wealth, prosperity, comfort, ease, even certain rights of living are ours by nature of being Christians? We know if we secretly subscribe to those things by how we respond when those things are taken away from us. When those comforts, when those points of ease are not allowed us. But what should we expect? Remember last week we talked about being sojourners, strangers, pilgrim theology, the fact that we temporarily reside here but we have an eternal home, an eternal father, an eternal family, an eternal savior, uh, new heavens and a new earth and all of that to anticipate forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so in perspective, what we have now is just a, a quick blip on the radar. And that's the, that's the theological reality that we have to then be very focused and intent to keep before us as the, the, the actual reality in which we live. But if you remember that, and remember that we live by faith as sojourners and strangers in this world, and we're anticipating an eternal home to come, what should our expectations be for this life and how the world and life and people may treat us? Today, we're going to consider the theology of Christian suffering. Okay? So put your rose-colored glasses on, and let's look at life. Now, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna consider the idea of really hardship, persecution, suffering as Christians. And I don't have time to give you many examples because we know what happens when I take too much time. So I encourage you to read the book of Acts. Okay, I encourage you to read history books, read Fox's book of martyrs. Uh, those are all about um, Christians in the past who have suffered uh, for being Christians. Read Voice of the Martyrs. It's a magazine now, current, that, that describes the suffering that Christians uh, are currently experiencing in the world. Read, uh, it's called World Magazine that often describes what is going on around the world specifically with regards to Christians and some of the things that they are going through. And you see what people, Christians specifically, have suffered and do suffer. And what we find in most in life and certainly the theology of the Bible is that suffering is a reality we must deal with. We must anticipate and accept and the question is, why and how do we do that well? So like we've done in the past, we're going to look at truths and then we're going to look at implications. And so let's consider some truths of Christian suffering. Uh, this is all in the handout there, so hopefully that's helpful just as you follow along. The first truth is this. Suffering is to be expected as a Christian. All right, Suffering is to be expected as a Christian. Jesus started that pattern... <laughs> 
in uh, what is not the best, you know, sales pitch ever. But in Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross, which is a death sentence, functionally. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For, and here's his eternal mindset that he's telling the disciples to have, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So even in the very beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you need to expect that there is suffering involved. Again, not the greatest sales pitch, but Jesus is being honest with what to expect as Christians. Over in Philippians 1, Paul in the midst of describing his own life and his own journey and and then even encouraging the Philippians, he says in verse 29, for to you it has been granted, okay, this interesting word, granted as in it's It's been bestowed upon you as a favor and a privilege. It has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Suffering is to be expected as a Christian, and that suffering can actually come in a variety of ways, okay? If you look in the handout, we're going to go through the first couple very quickly. Some suffering is due to discipline. Hebrews chapter 12 describes the fact that God disciplines us as a loving father does his children. And he's very honest in there. And he says, all, all of this is not pleasant in the moment that you're receiving it. D.A. Carson in his book, How Long the Lord, says, all the correct, and I appreciate this because sometimes I think we have to, we feel like we have to, to sort of just like grin and bear, you know, hardship that comes and act like it doesn't hurt or act like it's not a big deal. But Carson says, all the correct theology in the world will not make a spanking sting less or make a brutal round of toughening up exercise fun, yet it does help to know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel even if you cannot yet see it. Sometimes, Suffering comes because God is disciplining us. God is shaping us. God is molding us through those things. Sometimes suffering comes simply because there is a sin-broken world in which we live. We see this all the way in Genesis 3, in the curse. Okay, the suffering Adam was going to suffer as he, as he carried out his, his God-given mandate to, to care for the earth and to cultivate it. And Eve was going to suffer in the midst of childbirth and even in their relationship dynamic and all those types of things. Why? Because we live in a sin-broken world. Okay, so sometimes suffering happens there. But the one that we're going to major on today is this third one, that suffering can come due to faithful living. Look in John chapter 15 with me. John chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus again, ever the consummate salesman, says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, then they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. All right, so Jesus there is setting the expectation that the world, if we as, as Christians are living faithfully in the world as God calls us to, then the world will respond to us as they responded to Christ. They'll either respond with, with acceptance and, and embracing of his truths, or they will respond with persecution and ridicule and, and, and all those types of things. And that's what we should expect. Look over in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. The writer says, But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully. <laughs> Sorry, that, that, that word, accepted joyfully, and then the, the seizure of your property. Because you're Christians. knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. You hear that pilgrim theology informing the Hebrews' response to suffering? They know, hey, you can take that. That's fine. I'm not going to take that into eternity anyway. And I have a much better place coming that I am headed towards. And so I can accept the, accept the seizure of that property, of those possessions, because my ultimate possession is yet to come. Man, talk about just a, a, a theological reality that presses into the, the very fabric of their response and their ideology. and um, It's just incredible. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, it says, Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you also yourselves are in the body. It's amazing to me because it's not, it's not that poignant to me. I have not had property seized, but it could happen. I have not had my back beaten by rods, but it could happen. I have not had my children taken from me, but it could happen. I have not been imprisoned, but it could happen. And see, this is, this is where we currently live and sit. And frankly, much of the world around us is actually living in that right now. The seizure of property, the burning of homes, the, the shooting of pastors, the shooting of Christians. Again, if you read those, those periodicals or those articles about what's going on in Africa or in the Middle East, that is life. And that is life because they claim Christ. And that's suffering because of faithful living. D.A. Carson says, Christians in the West, largely untroubled by, uh, by official persecution, must become aware that we are something of an anomaly. 
If you remember at the very beginning of this, um, Myro referenced the fact that Carson in his book says this is preventative medicine. This is, this is medicine that we're taking ahead of time for the sake of fortifying our faith and our souls and our very lives before God so that when we encounter these things, we know how to respond. Okay, so again, we currently in the West are a little bit of an anomaly and not necessarily experiencing to the the depth and breadth of what even much of the world around us as Christians, the Christians in those areas are experiencing. And yet, we can't just kind of go along in 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 our pleasant little comfortable world as if this is reality because that can change like that. In the midst of a personal relationship, it can change. In the midst of your financial situation, it can change. In the midst of the government's perspective towards Christians, it can change. In the midst of, uh, it can all change. And so we need to be aware that our anomaly life is not necessarily what to expect. One writer, Christopher Plummer, says, Paul consistently presents Christians, apostles included, with two options. One, being ashamed of the gospel and thus denying their faith. Or two, allowing the gospel to run its dynamic course through their lives and thus suffering for it. And although a Christian's sufferings may not entail persecution for the sake of the gospel, Paul references, you know, in his apostolic ministry, he was set upon by bandits and he was shipwrecked. Okay? In Paul's mind, it usually is associated with the gospel, but it's not necessarily. So this is not, this idea of suffering for faithful living is not necessarily a, I'm standing on the corner and I'm proclaiming Jesus Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection, and if you don't believe, you're going to go to hell, and so you need to repent and believe so that you can go to heaven and submit to Jesus as Lord, right? That's, it's not, you know, doing that and then getting beaten or thrown into jail necessarily. Like, it is partly that. But it can be suffering that comes from just living the kind of life that is fueled by gospel truths, but then is lived out in daily practicalities. For example, our views on the sanctity of life. If we hold to that because of what God has said, then there might be suffering that comes. Our, Our views on sexuality our views on marriage, our beliefs on the nature of humanity, our convictions about the creation and the coming end of the world, our lifestyle choices fueled by biblical principles, all these and more can bring about suffering ranging on the spectrum from ridicule to death. Plummer again says, if we were to interview a first century opponent of early Christianity, and there's parallels here, so this is helpful, and ask him why he was persecuting Christians, he would likely differ from Paul's theological evaluation of the situation, right? That is to say, he would not say, oh, I hate the truth of what God has to say about my idolatrous life and human-based righteousness. He wouldn't put it in those kind of categories, right? But those are the spiritual realities, and such spiritual realities played themselves out in the practicalities of daily life in the familial, the social, and the political arenas. Bruce Winter, for example, cites the following reasons for outsiders' opposition to early Christianity. The fact that Christians gathered for weekly meetings, which was forbidden by law. 
They didn't participate in the common cultic ceremonies, you know, surrounding emperor worship and things like that, and they didn't do that. The fact that their leader was crucified, which was just, just, just a ridiculous and scornful idea to the Romans and to the Jews of the time. And besides these real differences from the surrounding pagan culture, Christians also faced rumors inspired by the hatred, jealousy, and fear of their opponents. You see in, uh, in, in, New, in post-New Testament writings that f- outsiders falsely accuse Christians of being cannibals because of the Lord's Supper of being atheists because they were monotheistic as opposed to polytheistic, and of being incestuous fornicators because of the, the, the close familial connection within church bodies. All right, so all of this means that we, brothers and sisters, should expect suffering. We don't have to actively seek it like it's some mark of higher Christianity, but we should expect it if we live faithfully, we shouldn't fear it. And this is what I don't want our church body to become, fearful of persecution or suffering for the name of Christ. I don't want us to prize our own safety or our own comfort in the world in which we live over faithful living for Christ. And this is important as we disciple each other and as we disciple our kids. Think about how we engage with our kids on this kind of a level. Ooh, no, I don't, want to, I don't want you to go there because they might really let you have it. Or, hey, son, you need to just be a little bit more tactful as you maybe talk about Christ because uh, they, you know, or, or, you know, well, we won't, we won't broadcast the fact that we don't do this or we do do this because we just don't want people to ridicule our children. We don't want to live like that. We want to set forth like Jesus did. Look, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and come after him. Same thing for our kids, same thing for one another in the midst of how do we encourage each other in the midst of a hard time, for, hard time of work. Hey, you know what, brother, just kind of soften your lifestyle there because really, like, you want to have, a, you want to have you know, this, this, this reputation of being well-spoken and things like that and then we misapply versus of having a good reputation with outsiders because that's a good reputation of integrity and, and uprightness and honesty and not, you know, everybody likes you because you never are willing to present the truth, not that kind of a, of a reputation. But we need to help disciple each other and our kids. Carson again says, Sometimes we want to protect our children or our church from too many things. For instance, we sometimes try to protect them from the caustic scorn of peers who have little time for Christian values. After all, we console ourselves. The Bible says much about earning a good reputation with outsiders. But I look at my children and I wish for them. This is really, this is really um, encouraging to me. And I wish for them enough opposition to make them strong. Enough insults to make them choose. Enough hard decisions to make them see that following Jesus brings with it a cost. A cost eminently worth it, but a cost. A church that is merely comfortable, that never evangelizes, that never encourages its people to stand on the front line will never be strong, never be grateful, never able to sort out profoundly Christian priorities. 
The Bible is very clear that faithful living begets suffering. Again, it's on a spectrum, right? So it's not like if, you, if, if you're not getting chased with, with spears that you're an unfaithful Christian. That's not what I'm saying, but a lack, a complete lack of these things is, is, a, is, a, is a thermometer for us in our living. And we need to ask ourselves, if they hated Christ, then how am I representing Christ to them? And you can see that based upon some of the responses to those things. Suffering is to be expected. Suffering is to be um, not feared. Again, because why? Because we're, we're pilgrims. And so even to the, if, the, if the worst extent of suffering comes upon us, then we know where we're going. So, suffering number two, uh, letter B, sorry. Suffering is going to get worse in time. 2 Timothy 3.10 talks about how evil men are going to go from bad to worse. Right now, the USA can feel a little bit cushy. Maybe because our culture is a little bit tolerant. Maybe because we as Christians are a little bit too subdued. But either way, it can feel a little bit cushy. But I think we can also be honest and see how, how there are some somewhat frightening, okay, somewhat clarifying directions in both public and private spaces and policies. And although it seems that many people have you know, kind of put their hope in creating the millennial kingdom here now, through policies and, and governing leaders, um, we would understand the biblical teaching to fall in line with what Paul says there. Evil men are going to go from bad to worse. When Jesus comes, it will all get made right. But until that, this is not going to improve. And so we will likely be treated and viewed worse and worse as the days and years go on. Our children will probably be viewed and treated worse than we have been, which means I need to be equipping and fortifying my kids, definitely not sheltering them in those things. Let us see, suffering is to engender God-glorifying contentment. Look at 2 Corinthians with me. And again, this is all so fast, but you have the handout to be able to look at more if you want. Um, and this is all just to provoke the, the thoughts of, if we believe such and such, then how does it inform how we live? So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, specifically, after, after delineating some, some suffering that Paul's going through, he says, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults. Man, I don't usually put the words content with weaknesses and insults, much less distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, so in Paul's mind, suffering brought about a God-glorifying contentment because in our weaknesses, in our suffering, as we then respond in ways that honor the Lord, God is glorified, and that was Paul's greatest desire. And lastly, temporal suffering is eclipsed by eternal glory. Temporal suffering is eclipsed by eternal glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm going to read 7 through 18 because we need to read it all. 
But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, this is our bodies, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also be, may, may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, light affliction, that's everything that Paul has suffered and gone through, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You hear that eclipsing there? That the temporal suffering is eclipsed by the eternal glory. And he says, while we look, here's his pilgrim theology, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul says, I can suffer, and I can even consider it light because of the weight of my eternal home and glory that's to come. And so that's why last week was so important for this week. So if we ought to expect, anticipate, and even welcome suffering for the right reasons, the question then as faithful believers is not if, but when. Hence, Peter's writing in 1 Peter. What we find is that in 1 Peter, Peter doesn't say if, he says when. And then he also says, oh, and don't act surprised about it. (laughs) You should have expected it. And then he gives them instructions for how to suffer well. So follow along. I'm going to read a few select passages in 1 Peter, and then we're going to glean some principles at the end of the readings. All right, so here's some principles for suffering well from 1 Peter. All right, I'm going to read 1 Peter 2, 9 through 25. Where it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And keep in mind, this is is in the midst of a, a, a body of people who have been dispersed because of just incredibly violent persecution. Okay, you see, you see stories of, of believers being encased in wax and, and lit as candles for the midst of, of, of parties in, for Caesar and, and things like that. And they're driven out and blamed for the fire and, and they're, they're losing their livelihoods, they're losing their lives. Okay, so all of these are in that context. So verse 12, 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. 
so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and don't use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, this is, this is a pretty wild portion right here. Because in the midst of talking about um, persecution and life and suffering and you've been dispersed and, and, and now servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. This finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if you sin and are harshly treated, you endure that with patience? No credit. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure that this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Look over in chapter 3, verse 18. Again, all in the context of how to endure a faithful life in the midst of a context of suffering and hardship. He says in verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8, to sum up, all of you, be harmonious. Sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong for Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit Look over in chapter 4, verses 1. Well, I'm going to read the whole chapter. So settle in. 
Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he, listen to this, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, for you to have pursued a course of sensuality and lusts and drunkenness and carousing, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they, those people, are surprised that you don't run in with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has been for this purpose preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they will live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another. Keep the context in mind as you hear these directions. Without complaint, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Skip down to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But, but make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 19, therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Last one, chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Suffering is just a, it's a commonplace occurrence. Verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That was a lot of reading. But God's word can say it so much better than I could that I just figured I would let that, by and large, just speak to us this morning about the idea, about the possibility, the imminence even, of suffering as Christians. And again, this is not because we're necessarily standing on the corner, although I think this could be great, trumpeting the gospel and having people respond badly to that, but it's because we are seeking to faithfully live for Christ. And so if this comes, then how do we suffer well? Well, St Stephen Schwartz says in his book, Strength in the River, 
Peter wrote to the persecuted believers, but he had a surprising message to share. He didn't tell the suffering and soon-to-be-suffering believers to run and hide. He didn't tell them to protest the government or pray desperately for deliverance from this suffering. Instead, Peter answered the question, what do we do while we suffer? How do we handle this? And I just listed out some ideas as I was trying to sort of synthesize in those first Peter portions that I read. What does this look like? So if and when, okay, if and when suffering, whether it's on the one end of the spectrum of just ridicule or passed over promotions or uh, whatever the case, all the way to death, if and when those things come because we are seeking to faithfully live out the, the, the good deeds and gospel witness that God himself has saved us to be and to do, Here's what we must do. We must remember who you are as Christians. And that involves so much of being faith-filled in the character of God, of having the right perspective of eternity and what's to come, and always remembering, I follow Jesus. I am secure in him. I serve a faithful God who will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish me. And I can endure this. We must keep our conduct holy. Never, never is, is suffering or persecution a reason to then sin in response. Rather, it's a reason actually to just ramp up our good deeds and our good conduct all the more. That's why Jesus said, when someone takes your, your tunic or your robe, give them your tunic. When someone wants you to go a mile, go too. Bless those who persecute you. Keep your conduct holy. In First Peter, I, I didn't read it, but we're told we do that because God is holy. And we're Christians. We're God followers. And he's changing us from glory to glory into the image of Christ on a daily basis, and he will use suffering for that. Okay? Principle number C, letter C. Uh, submit in the midst of suffering. Don't see suffering as a reason to just then kick against anything and everything that comes upon you. The principles of submission in the midst of suffering are actually a, a, a gospel witness, are actually a witness of the work of Christ in our lives, and that's submission to external authorities, and that's even submission to one another. This is even where Peter then talks about wives submitting to their husbands in, in those ways, even the unbelieving ones. And, and it's all in the context of living in the midst of a context of, of, of persecution and hardship and suffering. So submission is actually an important principle to keep in mind in the midst of suffering. Letter D, we need to suffer for the right reasons. I was talking this over with Rick, and he said, yeah, don't suffer for being a knucklehead. That's right. Don't suffer for being a knucklehead. Because then it doesn't, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't give you any credit, okay? You if you suffer for being a lawbreaker or a sinful person or a knucklehead, that doesn't give you any credit. But if we suffer for the right reasons, for doing good, for representing God, for living out biblical principles, that's what we're called to. And th this, is not, this is not a pleasant thought, this, but... That's why I read so much of the Bible, because it's in the Bible. 
And so we need to be aware of it. We need to keep it in mind that we suffer for the right reasons. All right, we need to keep the Savior's example in mind. As we anticipate suffering, keep the Savior's example in mind. That popped up multiple times in the midst of what I read. If there was one person who should have kicked against or had the power to not submit or any of those types of things, it was Christ. And yet because of who he is and what he was doing and what he was about and and what God had called him to, he set us an example. We're to be a gospel witness in your suffering. Why do we have hope? What are we anticipating? What are we looking forward to in the midst of suffering? That should be so in contrast to the world around us that it, that it just sets, causes people's jaws to drop and, and they're, either, they're either attracted to it or they're repulsed by it. We're to rejoice in the sanctifying effect of suffering and this is not just in First Peter but this is in Romans and this is in James also. Right, That as suffering comes upon us, we know that God works it for our character, that God works it for our eternal good, that our faith is being refined, and yet so often we're like, ah, suffering, don't want it, never, no, don't want to feel it, don't want to just, just like, I get a little bit and I don't want any more, can I get out of this, how do I escape this? At least, that's my first response many times. But biblically, we should rejoice in the sanctifying effect of suffering. And then... How wild is this? Stay devoted to your church body. In the midst of suffering, draw closer. Love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Minister to one another. Serve one another as God has gifted you to serve. And a time of suffering in your life is actually the time to press into that all the more. I wish we could read the last couple chapters of Hebrews because of how that helps to describe that also. But you can do that but you stay devoted to your church body. And then finally, like we closed in that last passage, we trust God's purposes in suffering. We trust God's plan. And as we talked about the first few times, we trust his sovereignty. None of the sufferings that we do or will experience come upon us outside of God's plan for our lives. And so the the question then in the midst of those times is not, how do I escape this? Okay, or at least it's not just that, but, but of a higher priority must be, how do I honor the Lord in this? And how do I respond to this time of suffering or persecution or hardship in a way that keeps these principles in mind? And so as government policies maybe come down the line, as your work responds to you in such a way, as, you, as you, your, your friendships or even your family members ridicule you for some of your ridiculous family principles or your ridiculous morality or you know, those types of things or whatever the case, remember these things. Let that then shape your thoughts, shape your feelings, shape your responses and give you not only uh, information for how to act, but, but hope for both the process and the end of those times. Because it is something that God purposes for us. It is something that God wants us to expect. And it is something that God has promised to bear us through. So, it's not if, but when. Let's prepare ourselves. 
as faithful Christians to yield the results of that, to, to welcome the results of that both now and in eternity. All right, let's pray together.